Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, how are you? Welcome to the program. This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It is nice to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. Hope everything is going all right wherever you are. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Margot Livesey, author of a new novel called The Road from Bellhaven. I find this fascinating in my own life and in those of people I encounter. You know, that it can seem that a person is going from A to B to C, um, that the path is rolling out before them, and then suddenly there's a swerve or a jump of an Perhaps they meet someone, um, perhaps they fail an exam, perhaps they get a job, um, perhaps they decide to go to Samoa, uh, you know, that something very unexpected occurs. And, and I find that tremendously interesting, the unpredictability and the sense one has, the way in which one revises the story in retrospect to make it seem fated. But, of course, in advance, it's completely unpredictable. Okay, that was Margot Livesey. Her new novel is called The Road from Belhaven, available from Knopf. The Road from Belhaven is set in late 19th century Scotland. It is about a young woman named Lizzie Craig. Lizzie possesses the rare gift of second sight, she can see into the future at times. And she is growing up on Belhaven Farm in the care of her grandparents, as both of her parents have passed away. This novel is about Lizzie's coming of age and the people and the moments in her young life that are defining, that shape her destiny. It is an utterly absorbing novel, beautifully written. I got so invested in this book and so invested in these characters. And I got to say, I loved being in the Scottish countryside. Just a wonderful novel and a wonderful conversation with Margot Livesey. That is coming up in just a bit. 
Before we get going, a quick reminder about my weekly email newsletter. I would love it if you would subscribe over at bradlisty.substack.com. The newsletter is simple. I let you know about the latest episodes of the show on a weekly basis. I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if that sounds enjoyable, go sign up over at bradlisty.substack.com. Likewise, there is an Other People Patreon community. If you love this show, if you listen regularly, if you feel like you get something from it, if you appreciate the work that I do, join the Other People Patreon community and help keep this show going into the future over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can also join the Other People Book Club. If you're not aware, I have a book club. You can get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. It's just $9.99 a month. It's less than the cost of a book. For more on that and to sign up, just go to the show's official website, otherppl.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Mary Sue Rucci Books, publisher of the novel The Storm We Made by Vanessa Chan. It is the official February pick of the Other People Book Club. I will be speaking with Vanessa Chan on this program later this month. The Storm We Made is a dazzling saga about the horrors of war, the fraught relationships between the colonized and their oppressors, and the ambiguity of right and wrong when survival is at stake. That is The Storm We Made, the new novel by Vanessa Chan, available from Mary Sue Rucci Books. All right, so it is time for my conversation with Margot Livesey. Her new novel is called The Road from Bellhaven, available now from Alfred A. Knopf. Margot Livesey was born and grew up on the edge of the Scottish Highlands. She is the author of a collection of stories and nine other novels, including Eva Moves the Furniture, The Flight of Gemma Hardy, and The Boy in the Field. She lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and is on the faculty of the Iowa Writers' Workshop. I am very pleased to have Margot Livesey on this show for the first time and to have had the chance to speak with her about her excellent new novel. So here we go. This is my conversation with Margot Livesey, and her new book, One More Time, is called The Road from Bellhaven. A number of years ago, I wrote a novel called Eva Moves the Furniture, which was about my mother's relationship with the supernatural. My mother had died when I was quite young and I had all I had was a handful of stories out of which I spun this novel. And then in 2017, I discovered that I wasn't an orphan in the sense of having no living relatives, that I had many living relatives. They just all happened to be in, in or around Brisbane in Australia. And when I eventually went to visit them, I discovered that my great-grandmother, Lizzie Malcolm, although I shouldn't say that, let's, let's, my, my great-grandmother, Lizzie Craig, had the gift of second sight, that she could see the future. And she could also, according to her descendants, read tea leaves and had healing hands. 
And that really interested me because what I had thought was my mother's unique gift, I suddenly thought, oh, this, this is hereditary. Um, I'm, I come from a family of seers, even though at my rather advanced age, I've so far failed to see anything. I always, I always lament this about people who are in touch with the supernatural, people who see ghosts. I'm, I want to see one. Please, let, me, let something cool happen to me. Never yeah, happens. Yeah. I'm waiting every night. <laughs> yeah, right. But, okay, so this is really, as a creative exercise, you exploring your own genealogy imaginatively. Is that accurate? Yes. Um, broadly speaking, that's accurate. I mean, once again, the fact that I knew so little made things easier imaginatively. I actually knew more about my grandmother, but precisely because I knew more about her, I felt the story was already written, whereas my grandmother was sufficient, my great grandmother was sufficiently hazy that she invited me. Okay, so just to try to trace the family tree, great-grandmother was Elizabeth, Lizzie, is that right? Correct. And then grandmother was Barbara. Yes. Okay, and I know from doing some research, I believe, didn't Lizzie, the great-grandmother, die when Barbara was born? Didn't she die in childbirth, or is that not accurate? No, no she didn't die in childbirth, but uh, my grandmother died in childbirth. Oh, with when you, and she gave birth to your mother, of yes, course, yes. yes. No, of I'm course. Sorry, sorry, it's so confusing. But it's interesting. It's interesting. And you were raised in Scotland on the grounds of a boys' school. Yes. Your, your father was a math and geography teacher. Your mother was the school nurse there. And what I found interesting as I was reading up is that both of your parents were only children. Is that right? And you're an only child? Yes. So in terms of hereditary, the, the gift of second sight is a hereditary gene somehow in your family, though it must have, it might have skipped you. But then also it's interesting to me that only children seems to be a thing, at least in your immediate biological sphere. Yes, I, it, it's, it is. And um, happily and perhaps rather confusingly when I talk about my life, on the one hand, I talk about myself as an orphan with no relatives until 2017. And on the other hand, I have this family whom I very successfully adopted many decades ago. So I refer to my sisters and my brother. And and these were people in Scotland. I believe it was the father was Roger yes. and he was the English teacher. Yeah. they Roger taught at the same school as my father and they they left their door open and I just ran into their house. Okay. But it's interesting to me because I think a lot of times when I talk to writers, they tend to pick up at least the love of reading from one of their parents. Sometimes they have a parent who's a writer or who is someone who would wish they could have written. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, an, that's a common story. But it seems to me like this adopted father, Roger, was a big influence in, on you, uh, clearly, right? He, yeah. Did he pass along his love of books to you in a way that really set you on your course? Roger very much did, but I would also say that my father and my stepmother unwittingly did, because reading was one of the few activities they praised me for. Climbing trees, chasing the dog, making mud pies, 
trying to collect birds' nests, all the sort of things I did running around, they frowned on, but reading was good. So uh, it, on both sides, I got encouragement. And you have described your childhood and your home life as Dickensian, severe. Like these are adjectives that I've read you use in interviews. <laughs> yeah. It was it, it was tough. It, it, was, it was hard. I mean, it was Dickensian, I think, in that the two adults were just, my father and stepmother were just so remote and had no interest in having a child. And then we had very few modern conveniences. We didn't have a phone or a refrigerator or a television until I was nine. The first real memory I have of the television is seeing uh, the news about Kennedy. So it felt like we were tracing our footsteps back to another century, which when it came to writing about Lizzie Craig was very helpful. I was going to say, this book is feels like it is built from these bits and pieces as books tend to be from your life. And yeah. one of the things about it that I so admire is your ability to write place. Yeah. It's very vivid in my imagination, despite the fact that I have never been to Scotland or the Scottish Highlands or the near nearby the Scottish Highlands. And you're great at writing nature. You're great at capturing animals on the page, uh, birds, cows, I don't know. That kind of stuff just comes vividly to life. And this is the this is the environment in which you grew up. It is. And I would say that this is very much my my version of a COVID novel. Suddenly in the spring of 2020, I realized I wasn't going to be able to go back to Scotland anytime soon. And that was so upsetting. And the only way I knew how to deal with it was by going there in my imagination every day. Oh, interesting. That is, I, I did not, usually I can detect, it's, it's usually fairly explicit when a book is a COVID novel these days, because it's, you know, there's references to masks or people are, people are taking up pottery and like, you know, getting frustrated with their children. But this, you're in a completely different time. You're in like the late Victorian era in Scotland, but you are very much outdoors and on a farm and I can see how that would be imaginatively yeah. appealing. Yeah. No, it was very, I mean, the road from Belhaven was my magic carpet. I got to go to Scotland every day. Yeah. It's lovely in that way. Where were you during the, the when you were, where were you sheltering? I'm curious. I was sheltering in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, okay. So that was a rough time, the pandemic. And yet I feel like when I talk to writers, a lot of writers were productive. I, I often hear from writers that things weren't quote unquote that much different considering how insular <laughs> writers can be. Right. I, I mean, we've been sort of sheltering in place our whole lives, many of us, you yes. know, it's, it, it, you know, not to make light, but it, it really as a lifestyle was maybe not that big of a leap for the literary set. Yeah. Yeah. We were better prepared than many other people. I think psychologically better yeah. prepared. Yes. Uh, I think that the mode that a lot of people had so much trouble adjusting to is a mode that most writers are fairly comfortable with. Yeah. That was the case for you. Yeah, in many in many ways it was I mean it was a stressful time, but it was also unstressful because I could read and write and go for walks. Um, it was um, and everything was sort of simplified. 
Yeah, I felt the same way. Like the mm -hmm. social obligations were curtailed and you had a kind of like a, a winnowed down list of possibilities, which isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world <laughs> as it turns out. But I, uh, I really, really love the nature aspect of this book. And it's not necessarily all easy, like farm life, the, the difficulties of farm life, particularly in that era are really brought into focus and it's really approaching the era of mechanized farm work. Some yeah. of that is depicted in the novel. So you're right on the cusp right. of kind of the old school way of farming, which was very much just human labor yeah. to using, you know, plow, like motorized plows and combines and all that kind of stuff, which simplified things. And I am curious to know how much research you had to do to capture it so well and to make it come off on the page uh, like in such a lived in way. I had uh, two things that helped me immensely. One was that from the ages of nine to 13, I didn't live at the boys' school. I lived in a village in the borders of Scotland. And on the outskirts of this village was a farm run by a brother and sister that I think hadn't changed in a hundred years. And I went there every day um, to feed the hens and milk the cows and I kept pigeons there and you know I thought I was being very helpful though how much help I was at the age of nine or ten I'm not certain and then I also found a wonderful diary that had been kept by a, a farmer near where Lizzie and Lizzie's farm was in Fife and it was an extremely dull and detailed account of farming and it was just unbelievably helpful. Oh, interesting and but dull that's oh, yes. that's what's interesting <laughs> yes. yeah. you know it was just rain planted turnips repaired fence sam cut his foot you know it was just a list of facts that's right but that's farm work though yeah. it's just there's just stuff that has to get done every yes. day yeah and it's a lot of hard labor as it turns out and in like things like injuries yeah uh they really can have a huge impact on livelihood. Yeah. There's something dramatic about even like a cut foot yeah. if it eliminates your ability to get out and do the work because no one else is going to show up to do it, right? Yeah. So it's yeah. like it can it can ruin you yeah. if you break a leg. So yeah. I I also read that as a child you were a bird watcher that you and your father yeah. were like avid bird watchers. This was something that you guys shared. Yes. He was 55 when I was five and he was an elderly 55. So bird watching was one of the few things he really liked doing that I was interested in. And um, it was, I mean, again, it was rather dull for a child. You know, you wait and wait and wait behind a bush and then a <laughs> yellow hammer flashes by and you sort of miss it. <laughs> right, right. Um, but I did, I did um, learn his love of birds and learn to recognize birds by flight and sound. And you still, so you can, like, is this something you've carried with you into adulthood? Like, do you yeah. bird watch? Yeah, I, um, I wouldn't say I bird watch. I, I watch, I observe birds with pleasure. I always notice them. And do you know, like, do you have an unusual knowledge of, like, the birds, say, in Cambridge? When you walk outside, can you look at a bird and name it and watch its flight pattern and know what it is? I, I, I'm still a bit shaky on American birds as opposed to Scottish birds. 
but you know, if you come to Fife with me, I'll name you every bird we see. Right, right. Yeah, it was funny when you, I was reading the essay that you wrote about your trip to Brisbane, where you went and kind of met your your cousins and the birds in Australia, radically different. I, I spent time down there. I actually oh. went to Queensland University in Brisbane oh, okay. when I was in college. And uh, I remember that vividly, just walking oh. around campus and being like, what is the noise I'm hearing? This is yeah, different. Right. You know? It's completely different. Yes. Yeah. It's lovely down there though. So I want to ask you a bit more about the like supernatural aspect of this because Lizzie, your heroine, has second sight and she sees what are called pictures mm -hmm. or what she refers to as pictures where she can usually uh, see bad things. Mm -hmm prior to their happening. That's the pattern, right? Yeah. It's usually bad things. Yeah. And I'm wondering if this is something you have drawn from family history. Was this the pattern in your family? Did you like, did they ever see good things? <laughs> <laughs> well, I do have Lizzie see some ordinary things like somebody getting a new hat, for instance. So there are meant to be more mundane things. And um, I, have, I have two friends who can see the future in a very ordinary sort of way. And I talked to both of them about what that experience was like. So Lizzie's experience is modeled on my understanding of what they described. Just it's as if the, the teeth of time slip and they can suddenly see something and then they slip back again. That's so wild. And yet I am prepared 100% to believe it. I, uh, I think there are people who, I think it's pretty clear that there are people who can see things because there's evidence. Like yeah. I want to say, wasn't it your grandmother or great grandmother who saw the beginning of the Crimean war or something like she very, very good, Brad. What she saw was that the Japanese would enter the second world war on the side of the Germans, which was completely unexpected. But you can corroborate that is yeah. the point, yes. you know, yes. Yes. that's wild. And, and I guess we have no idea what that is. There's just some sort of larger consciousness that they can tap into, yeah. or I don't know. I don't even know yeah. how to describe it. The, te yeah. the teeth of time slipping is maybe a yeah. better way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I want to get into the magic of this book for me, which is how absorbing it is. And how, th like, there's not, I mean, I guess there are some, dr like, very dramatic things that happen, but it's not a book that I would describe as having, like, pyrotechnics in it. Mm. This is a book about a young woman's life, her coming of age, and her finding her way in her life, and coming up against difficult circumstances, mm -hmm. familial, cultural, societal. Mm -hmm. There are barriers to what a young woman could expect from her life in this time yeah. that we see Lizzie come up against. So that's where some of the drama is drawn from. We're wondering what's going to happen mm -hmm. to her. But you do such a seamless job of moving us through her life and through time. And you make the reader, you made me care so much about her fate. How did you do that? <laughs> uh, that? 
if only all questions in my life were phrased like this, I would be a, <laughs> a much, much happier woman. I did, I mean, I did work very hard. I, I had a number of ambitions when I began the novel. I wanted to write a short novel that covered around 10 years in Lizzie's life. And I wanted to write a novel that was set in the past, but didn't have the kind of baggage that one sometimes thinks of in connection with a historical novel, that it just happened to be taking place there. I mean, it's essentially taking place in the 1880s. I don't mean to sound like it's hovering above things, but I didn't want to spend a lot of time explaining to you how the sewage, how the sewage system worked, for instance, or <laughs> thank you, <laughs> <laughs> um, where where water came from, um, and I also I I knew the novel would sort of succeed or fail by how much I could make the reader care about Lizzie, um, and I was really trying to mirror that feeling. I confess I often had in childhood and have less often as an adult, of just falling into a book and caring so much about Anne of Green Gables, say, or Heidi, or um, Pippi Longstocking, or Jane Eyre, you know, all those great female characters. So I was really trying to, to learn and to learn from those people, to learn how to make the reader feel, oh, this really, really matters. Well, there, I feel like there is some kind of homage to the books you've mentioned. Uh, like It's like the Bronte, it's uh, Virginia Woolf, you know, yeah. all that kind of, yeah. like that era, this book feels like it is in some ways an homage to that. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yes. And when you're putting together the character of Lizzie, sort of building her out of some of the raw materials of your own life, but... I feel like the fact of her orphanhood, you know, because she is raised by her grandparents. She's lost both of her parents at a young age and has really only ever known her grandparents as her caregivers. And then at a certain point in the book realizes that she has a sister. So she has this, this is a character who is in a kind of precarious family situation, though her grandparents are loving. They are not, you know, they're not uh, bad people. Her grandfather's a bit stern, but I feel like that's accurate to the yeah. time, right? Yeah. You yeah. know, but we, I, I definitely found myself worried for her because she was being raised by older adults mm-hmm. and she was going to have to sort of be on her own sooner than she otherwise would have been. And there's something too about the self-contained nature of, of Bellhaven, this farm, mm-hmm. and the way that rural life unfolded back then and continues to unfold in some spots where they just kind of live in their own world you know there aren't necessarily neighbors right next door and so much of her existence unfolds on that land and within that family and whatever help might show up there's a guy named hugh who she befriends uh her sister eventually comes so people do come into her life but not a ton right Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns 
depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. No, and I, I, I owe a great debt to uh, the Scottish writer Lewis Grassic Gibbon's wonderful novel, Sunset Song, which is set in the 1900s, just be running up to the First World War. And his heroine, Chris, lives on an isolated farm. And there's that sense of the farm as its own world with its own rules. And there are neighbours who help out at harvest and sheep shearing and lambing, but they're not readily available. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, I, I'm capable of idealizing that life. It sounds lovely to have your own land and to just be sort of tucked away and mm-hmm. be able to see the stars and all that kind of stuff. But it's a hard life, too. It's a hard life, yes. It's a hard life <laughs> physically, but also the isolation. I guess it depends on what your temperament is. But, uh, you know, so a lot of people would struggle yeah. with that sort of thing. And you're also so much at the mercy of things completely outside your control, the weather. Uh, the price of barley, you know, yeah, things can be going very well and then it rains for four days and you lose half your crops. So it's a very right. capricious life. That's right. That's right. And like, you know, some sort of parasite can come in and just wipe out your entire livelihood yeah. in a season. So another thing that I want to ask you about has to do with... Lizzie's life as it unfolds in this novel and what appears to be to me your deep interest in I guess you would call it fate but the way in which a person's life unfolds and in particular how it is impacted by specific moments of change intersections with other people who have a dramatic impact on your life like this really is something that happens Mm -hmm. to human beings like we think back on the narrative of our own lives and we can point to moments or decisions things that happen that really altered the course of our destiny and you just talk a little bit about that because i feel like this is maybe one of your keener interests in the book to kind of locate these moments in lizzie's life and to trace the course of her young, at least, destiny. No, I I find this fascinating in my own life and in those of people I encounter. You know, that it can seem that a person is going from A to B to C, um, that the path is rolling out before them, and then suddenly there's a swerve or a jump. Perhaps they meet someone, um, perhaps they fail an exam, perhaps they get a job. Perhaps they decide to go to Samoa, you know, that something very unexpected occurs. And and I find that tremendously interesting, the unpredictability and the sense one has 
the way in which one revises the story in retrospect to make it seem fated. But of course, in advance, it's completely unpredictable. I mean, we all have these moments. And I want to say I read you, you had a moment uh, in your youth, what was it like you met somebody on the tube in London, and that was how you ended up in North America, more or less, right? So yeah. the, that was a moment for you. Yeah, it was a moment for me. And yes, it's not surprising that I'm interested in these moments. Well, we all have them. And I think yeah. we all have moments, at least, where we reflect and take an interest. And it's a little, it's, it can be awesome to think back if there's some pivotal moment that happened that led you to great things, but it can also be unnerving because you can look back and be like, wow, you know, all I would have avoided so much trouble had I not done X or had I not met Y, you know, but that's life. And I think some of it's in our control and some of it's not. No. And of course we, we like to think we're encouraged to think perhaps particularly in the West that we do have control, that we are making informed choices. But we're all living in the grip of history and chance. That's right. And I think for Lizzie, growing up on this farm and living at a remove from, certainly from urban life, and having the set of experience that that affords, a set of experiences that that affords her, the, the choices that she makes and the events as they unfold that lead her to spending time in Glasgow, I think what we're talking about speaks to that part of the novel, because this is, in addition to being a coming-of-age story, it is also a tale of like country and city. Yeah, very much, right? yes. So I'm curious to know about your upbringing seems to have been fairly rural and maybe experiences that you had in Glasgow or in other cities that might have colored the writing of this novel. No, I, you're quite right, Brad. I grew up in, you know, either the country, the boys' school, or in this very small village where I went to the farm. And when I discovered cities, which I did as a teenager, I thought, oh, this is amazing. This is fantastic. And um, it, it remains a big a big division in my life, the, the pleasure of the city and all the things we get out of cities and the beauty of the countryside and the pleasures of the pleasures of the countryside. So in an ideal world, I think we all ought to be able to go back and forth, but the world is less than ideal. I was going to say, yeah, it yeah. seems like you've sort of stick, stuck to cities yes. as an adult. That's the that's yeah. the lean of things. But I think that's just a necessity, right, with work. and yeah. Uh, but I have the same feeling. Like I live in Los Angeles. I always long. You can imagine I long for going someplace that's not so crowded. Yes. And uh, if I could have a little, but I, I would miss the city. So I yeah. would love to have a little of both. That's the ideal yeah. outcome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And have the choice to yes. be able to decide yeah. when you want to be where, yeah. you know. Yeah. So you were growing up and you said you discovered cities as a teenager. I would imagine there were trips to Glasgow. Is that what it was? or Actually to Edinburgh. Glasgow was not a city I got to know until I really started going there as an adult and then went more often on Lizzie's behalf. Um, so Edinburgh was the, the first city and then London. Got it. And and you said going on going to Glasgow on Lizzie's behalf, that means you were doing trips for research? Yes. Yeah. 
And so, and how often before the, you know, pandemic notwithstanding, how often do you get back to Scotland? I usually go three or four times a year. And sometimes occasionally more often if I can make up excuses. That's good. So um, I have to not think about my carbon footprint. My brother, my adopted brother is a tree planter in London and I make donations to buy trees. So... I would love to talk with you about your writing routine. You have published what now we're in the double digits now. How many novels have you published? This is your 11th? I think I maybe well I published a collection of stories and I think this is my ninth novel. Oh, maybe. ninth novel. But double digit books. Yes. Yes. So, you've been productive. Um moderate. I got off to a slow start, but I've managed to be relatively productive since since I started publishing. Yes. So let's talk about that slow start, because I imagine there are people listening who might be mired in a slow start, and this could give them some hope. So what was it, what was it like for you at the beginning? I, um, happily, I was living with someone who had stable employment at a university, and I supported myself by waitressing. Um, this was in Toronto, and uh, I started to write short stories between lunch and dinner shifts at the restaurants where I worked. And uh, they were all um, roundly rejected until I wrote a really very simple story about a young woman who was a waitress and one night after work did what I did, which was to hitchhike home through Toronto and um, what, what came of that. And once I'd written and published that story, I began to understand more about how stories worked. And I encountered a wonderful writing teacher named Brian Moore, um, to whom I took the same story seven weeks in a row until he broke down and said it was finished. That was the hitchhiking story? No, it was a different story. Oh, it was? Okay, okay. Uh, what, was the hit, what was the hitchhiking story called? Uh, I think, I can't remember, was it called Someone Else's? It was quite short. Um, but it was published? It was published in a small Canadian magazine. I mean, of the kind we cherish and love. And so how long did you spend, I guess we would refer to this as like your apprenticeship, all the years you were writing stories that could not find a home and yeah. that were not good enough for the page, you know, the yeah. printed page. Like how long were you apprenticing? Well, first I wrote a terrible novel and then I wrote short stories. So maybe adding those two together close to 10 years. And then I had published some stories and I saw um, an article in the Toronto Globe and Mail about an editor named Cynthia Good at Penguin Books in Canada. And she was starting her own imprint, publishing collections of stories. And so I sent her a couple of stories and said, would you like to publish me? I mean, I didn't really know how the world worked, so that seemed an okay thing to do. And nine months later, I got back a tiny note of the kind people used to use to record phone messages in the days when there were phone messages. And it, she said, Dear Margot Livesey, I would like to publish your stories, but you have to write some more. And um, that led to my first book, a collection of stories. And yeah. So do you remember where you were when you got that note? Uh, yes, I was uh, at Tufts University where I had a very adjunct position. And it must have been a thrill. It was hugely thrilling. 
And I mean, there are no rules. It's worth remembering. I know it was a different time in publishing and everything, but I've, I, that's not the first time I've heard of somebody just writing to an editor and being yeah. like, Hey, here I am. Yes. <laughs> yes. And if the stories are good, the, the reality is that editors live for that. They want to find yeah. writing that really speaks to them and that they want to publish. I mean, I don't think it matters how they get it necessarily. Yeah. yeah. No, so I, you, you were off and running from there. I wouldn't say running, but I was often walking. <laughs> <laughs> I was walking in the right direction and I began to understand how to do things. And yes, I, I, I became someone whose life was much more organized around writing and less around waitressing. Is it possible to locate specific things that you learned when you say you learned how things worked, you know, you're talking about how things worked in fiction. Mm -hmm. Like what was, what was something that you weren't doing in earlier failed efforts that you learned how to do once you were up and walking, as you say? Well, well, I think what I knew about writers, despite my university degree, came from my image of 19th century writers just sitting in parlours and kitchens and writing away. And you wrote, and then there was Wuthering Heights, or you wrote, and there was great expectations. So it, it took me a long time to realise that, for me at least, that was not what happened. I wrote, and then I had to spend a lot of time revising to make something good, that I was not someone who's, for whom the words leapt up on the page without effort. And once I understood that I could make things better, then my work took a big step forward. So you were, as a young writer, you had the pressure that you were putting on yourself that you had to get it right the first time, essentially. I don't know if I put pressure on myself. I just thought it would be right the first time. And if it wasn't, there was nothing to be done. It was more like, say, cooking a meal. Like, you can't revise a meal, usually. Right, right. So it took me a while to realize, no, it wasn't like that. You actually could make things better in significant ways. So nowadays, what does it look like for you? like generally speaking, in terms of drafting? Well, I aspire to write every morning um, for two or three hours before I descend into the world of my students' wonderful world, work and MasterCard bills and you know things like that. Uh -huh. And it usually takes about maybe 18 months for me to have a a draft of a novel and then maybe I revise it for another year something like that and do you were and are you working on word count like do you hold yourself to some metric to get through a draft in a timely fashion I, I have different metrics sometimes it's time sometimes I have to write 500 words or I have to write a thousand words usually one or the other and so with road to Bellhaven like and you're not working from an outline no, I had um, I had an idea of the destination of the novel, which I can't describe for you because it will spoil the plot. But so I, I sort of knew where I was heading, but I did not know the route, and there were many wrong turns. Ah, so you had the ending in mind, essentially. Yes. Is that common? Do you usually have that ending in mind when you write a novel? Well, I think the one thing I learned from the 
truly terrible novel I wrote in my early 20s was that it was very helpful to have an ending in mind rather than to sort of that novel just wandered from place to place. <laughs> and then suddenly the ending appeared a bit like a dog jumping onto your lap. And you, but you got it. <laughs> uh, well, no, I mean, it was terrible. It was terrible, Brad, because the ending came out of nowhere. Right, right. And you're just like, what? I just got to get, I got to get out of this novel, essentially. Right, right. yeah. Yeah, so no, no, it's a disaster. Um, but it, it did occur to me after that, that it would be helpful to think, oh, this is what I'm heading for. Well, Virginia Woolf, there's the famous line that she, she said that all one needs to do is to find the rhythm of a novel and everything else follows. Yes. And I read where you said, quote, I'm not sure that's quite true but I am increasingly aware of how much the rhythm and the level of detail determine what's possible. And I guess when it comes to the rhythm, it's just the rhythm of the, like the sound of the, of the voice on the page, the sound of the novel. Is that what you, you think she meant? Is that what you mean? I, I think it means more than that. I think it does mean the, the music of the language and the sound of the sentences. But I also think it means setting the level of detail you know that you can tell when you start beloved say tony morrison's wonderful novel you can tell that this novel is going to have quite a high level of detail and you can tell when you start say penelope fitzgerald's the beginning of spring that the novel is going to be fairly tight and spare so i think every writer is trying to figure out the level of detail they need to create their world. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's like something that I marveled at reading your book is you're rendering, uh, you know, a distant time and place. This, this story unfolds, what, like 120 years ago or more than that even, you know? And I believed it from word one. And like you said earlier, you weren't describing how the sewage system worked, <laughs> uh, blessedly, but you were describing other things and you have to make those choices. Mm-hmm. I, I can, I mean, that's a, that seems daunting to me to write a book that takes place in like the late Victorian era in Scotland mm-hmm. and the process of trial and error that you go through in the drafting and the revision when it comes to like landing on your level of detail like what does that look like did you go overboard and then have to kind of peel back or did you in revision find yourself adding more than subtracting i well i think this is the moment to say that i'm blessed by the friendship of a wonderful writer andrea barrett her her most recent collection of stories is natural history and most of her work is historical and she is an amazingly accurate writer and his fantastic research. So she's very good at um, asking me those questions that prompt me to think, okay, how, how, how did people have bicycles then? Or how was a colliery working? Or how did the coal get from A to B? And um, she does research ahead of time and then refines the novel out of the research. And I tend to write the novel and then dash around doing the research and weaving it in but i would my novels would be infinitely poorer if it were not for andrea's help 
So she reads as you're going and kind of helps you fill in details. Yes. And it's like, by the way, you need to get rid of the cell phone in this scene. Lizzie does not have. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) Because it can be easy, I think, even if you're, you know, trying to stick to the, the truth of the play, it can be very easy to mess up a detail. And I guess the average reader wouldn't notice it, but you still don't want those in there. Because if somebody, if, if an Andrea Barrett picks up the book and reads it and sees it, then you're going to be in trouble on your Amazon review. Yes, <laughs> the dreaded Amazon review. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, so you are like, is your husband a painter? Did I read that correctly? My husband paints wonderful abstract oil paintings, um, which are sometimes a little bit like novels. He works on them sometimes for many months, many layers, and then they emerge and are beautiful. So a question that I have has to do with, I'm always interested when I speak with somebody who is a partner with an artist in a different medium and what the dialogue creatively might be like between you and how they might feed each other. Like, do you derive some sort of creative benefit when it comes to your writing from your husband's work? I think I do, but it perhaps would not be easy to fully articulate what it what it is. I think one thing is that he passionately believes in art and in things taking their time. So that's very, very helpful. I, if you sat in on our supper time conversations, you would hear Eric being wonderfully witty and well-informed because he's been listening to NPR. And me, who spent the day reading the dictionary or looking at an account of 19th century farming, offering something about the Achilles turnip. (laughs) So (laughs) I I think I benefit much more than he does. Well, and I heard you say a second ago that you feel like his abstract oil paintings are novel-like. Yes. How so? Well, I think because they take quite a long time to get onto the canvas and because they, he, cre- he creates a lot of depth. And so you have a sense of looking into them. And I aspire in what I write, that there's a sense of depth, a sense of a world beyond the pages. Hmm. And you talked uh, about the drafting process and how typically it takes you 18 months to get a first draft done. And then I think you said you edited for a year on the road from Belhaven, more or less. Does that time span square with most of your novels? Is it is it is it similar from book to book? Because I feel like writers will often have a fairly regular incubation for their books, and it can it can differ. But is that normal for you to spend about two and a half three years on a book? I think at the moment it is. Um, In the case of Eva moves the furniture, the novel I mentioned earlier about my mother and the supernatural. I wrote it over 12 years and many drafts, but also doing many other things. And in the case of a novel called Criminals, I wrote a draft in three weeks at the McDowell Artists' Colony and then revised it for a year. Um, But I think the normal rhythm is more the two to three years. So for Eva, it's Eva Moves the Furniture. Yes. That's the one that took 12 years. Do you have a sense of why? I know you had other things going on, but was the story resisting you in ways that other books might not have? I think the problem was that I thought 
oh, I have a mother and that's fabulously interesting. And I didn't stop to think, oh, other people have mothers and they don't really need to know about mine. So it took me a long time to figure out how to make how to make what I found privately interesting, publicly interesting. Well, that's like, I think I, I've heard you say this before. I've read you say this before in, in an interview where like, that's kind of one of the primary questions that you ask yourself as you're working on a novel yeah. is, okay, this is interesting to me, but how can I make this interesting to yeah. the reader? Yeah. How can I take my private concerns and make them interesting to the reader? It's the most elemental question to ask yourself. And yet I feel like I and other writers perhaps often fail to ask that question and answer it sufficiently. It's a, it's a worthy question is the point, right? I, I think it's a, a very worthy question. Uh, my editor, uh, my long-term editor, uh, the wonderful Jennifer Barth, said to me once that when she's thinking about whether to take on a book, she always thinks, do I know five people who are not family members who would buy it in hardcover? And, um, I, you know, that I think of that in terms of, you know, just trying to think, well, why? I mean, there's so many books nowadays and so many claims on the reader's attention. What right do I have to claim their attention? How can I justify stopping them to listen to my story? Well, this gets back to what I was saying earlier about how much I cared about Lizzie and her yeah, fate. Yeah. And the, it's the magic trick of this book and maybe any book that keeps you turning the pages is that the writer is able to make you care. And I suppose, you know, it begins with you deeply caring about your characters and her fate. And I guess these biographical pieces of your life that you've imbued the story with. But in terms of making like the, the pivot, between that like self-generated interest and taking that and making it interesting to the reader and getting the reader to share your concern. That is a matter of language. Like it obviously all happens on the page, but that's the trick, right? How do you do that? How do you get me so invested in this young woman's life? Well, I think part of it has to do with attitude and with trying to sense what her attitude is when she goes into a hen house or goes into a schoolroom or helps with the sheep shearing. So I was always trying to show her world, but through a kind of very opinionated lens, if, if you will. I, I also was really struck by the lucidity of the prose. This is a I would call this like a book that goes down easy. Like I was never lost. Uh, it's a very sophisticated book. It's not that I'm trying to say that it was mm. simple or simple minded, but I, I, th I feel like you did the work as mm. the writer to make sure that it was vivid and arresting, like in terms of setting and character. And there's just a real crystalline quality. I believe Lauren Groff blurbed this book and called like she, she compared the book to like a cool mountain lake or something. I was like, yes, there's something very crystalline and uh, beautifully rendered about your prose. And that's just hard labor. I mean, do you have any thoughts in terms of like your style of writing and your approach to the work line by line? I think I'm one of those people who a lot of what I write early on are just 
sort of place markers and sort of lazy things. Um, you know, my characters are shrugging and nodding and turning and sighing. And, um, and then as I'm revising, I'm constantly trying to find more specific, more precise, um, more eloquent language to to bring them to life and details that seem richer and stranger that seem more like telling details so you like on subsequent drafts are dispensing with some of the cliches uh, and maybe like looking more closely like i feel like sometimes it's like there's a visual component to revision for me where you're, you're basically seeing the scene more clearly maybe yeah. than you initially did yeah. no i think that's a very good a good way of putting it i mean Francine Prose has a book, wonderful book, Reading as a Writer, but I think there's also a huge argument for sort of looking as a writer or seeing as a writer that we're gradually bringing the worlds we're creating into focus. I'm wondering uh, about your teaching life because you have taught in a lot of places. You mentioned Tufts earlier, but you've had a a rich teaching history uh, over the course of your career. And I'm always curious to hear how uh, a writer's creative life is affected by their day job or their side hustle or whatever it is. And teaching seems to be maybe one of the more symbiotic professions when it comes to a writing life. They feed one another. I have to believe that's the case for you since you've been doing it for so long. You get you get a lot from it too. In addition to having to give a lot, you do get a lot. I, I feel incredibly privileged to, I teach at the uh, halftime at the Iowa Writers Workshop. So I have fantastic students. I am paid to reread books and stories I love, which seems like a, a great gift. And, and I'm allowed to be an, an early reader for many gifted young writers. And there's something inspiring about watching them create their worlds and trying to help them get them more clearly on the page. So uh, initially, I, I found teaching truly terrifying. And I spent, you know, 40 hours a week preparing for a two hour class. But now, now I find and, and I kept thinking waitressing is so much better. But now I think um, that I'm very fortunate to be in a world where reading and writing matters. Yeah. And in terms of your approach as a teacher to, say, critique, uh, it's a delicate responsibility, is it not? Because you're working with writers usually in the early stages. I guess it depends, but often in the early stages of a project. And I did some teaching earlier in my professional life, and I struggled with this a little bit, where I, I was sort of frozen in terms of what to say because I know how awful some of my early drafts look. <laughs> and sometimes a very good piece of writing can emerge from that. So if you're too quick to condemn or to say something that might affect a writer's confidence, right. you could stifle something that would otherwise turn out quite well. So yeah. like, I'm just curious to know how you have over over the years developed your approach to this part of the job of teaching creative writing. No, that's a very good way of putting it. Uh, I think that, you know, partly for me, it's about listening to the writer and hearing what what they were after in, in the piece, what they hope to get on the page, even if it's not quite there yet. Um, partly it's trying to think about uh, 
you know, the extent to which the writing is maybe holding something back, that it seems like the scene between, you know, Francesca and Tobias is just dreadful, but if the sentences were better, it would be fine. You know, it's trying to sort of see through the scrim of not not so good writing, trying to imagine that. Um, sometimes it's just um, helping a writer discover or think about what is truly their material, um, what they're really interested in. It's interesting to me how often on this show over the years, I've talked to writers who have some version of this narrative where they'll say, you know, I was trying to write this other book for years even. They will spend trying to write a book that was resisting them. And then suddenly they'll be like, and then on the side, I started writing kind of like as a joke almost, or as like a lark, you know, they started writing this thing that was about their mother or the, the, the most important thing in their life, the thing right. they were trying to avoid. Yeah. And lo and behold, that's the one that turned out yeah. to have life. Yeah. And yeah. we, we sort of have to surrender to our material yeah. in that way. And was there a process of arriving at that for you? Because I think I can see from reading the road from Bellhaven that there are themes that you're interested in, family being one of them. You know, you think about Eva moves the furniture in the road from yeah. Bellhaven. You're clearly interested in this idea of family. There are certainly other things, but did you have a process of resistance before you finally yielded to what you're interested in? Well, I think I'm, I, I mean, I have some ambivalence about about family because um, having grown up in the way I did, I didn't, I didn't want to be just defined in terms of my blood family, my very small actual relatives. Uh, so I'm very much in favor of the chosen family, however it, however it's chosen or comes together, or the haphazard family. <laughs> uh, but I do think, going back to something you said earlier, there's a lot of luck in the artistic process. Sometimes, you know, it's like we're going to the roulette table and sometimes everything lines up and, you know, things come together and we find the language and the structure and the characters and the occasion. And sometimes sometimes it's the reverse and we have to struggle incredibly hard to get everything on the page. And I'm not sure that, our struggles necessarily yield a better or worse book, but I do believe in artistic luck. Yeah, I do too. Sometimes, sometimes the story meets you halfway or yeah. even better. And yes. other times you have to, you have to travel. Yes. <laughs> you know? That's a good way of putting it. So I, I, I want to ask another craft question while I have you uh, related to revision uh, in particular, since you teach writing and are probably having conversations along these lines with students fairly regularly, but are there specific things when you are in the revision process that you are looking to do or remove from the text or add to the text? Like in order to render writing and that is this crystalline, like to get to that clarity and to get to that vividness and to get to that level of uh, depth of character and all of it like do you have a process are there specific things that you will do from book to book that you've sort of learned over the years to look for in your own work in order to like make it shine well i think that 
you know, I, tr- I mean, I do at a later stage try to reread everything aloud, um, which is often tremendously tedious. Um, but I do keep thinking, you know, how is this advancing the novel? How is this making things go forward? How is this deepening the character? And I, at least in early drafts, I often have two or three scenes that are basically doing the same thing. And often I can condense them into one scene or have one scene and a brief summary. So for me, usually a lot of revising is about um, compressing or refining. And I think, yes, just trying to make sure that there isn't the wrong kind of repetition in a novel. Well, I feel like sometimes too, you can realize that certain characters are performing the same function. So you'll compress characters. I mean, you know, you hear that. Yes. No, absolutely. Yes. But I think sometimes, I think it's maybe the less common way of going about it. Sometimes writers add a lot in revision. It sounds like you do the, the bigger draft and then cut in subsequent revision. Well, I have for the last two novels I wrote, I, I wanted in each case, The Boy in the Field and The Road from Belhaven to be short novels. But I will confess, I just reread, I just not reread, I just read um, Paul Murray's The Bee Sting. Mm. And I was just blown away by his 650 pages or whatever it is. And I thought I was filled with envy. I thought, oh, why can't I do that? I mean, I don't think I can, but it did remind me of the pleasures of a longer book. Listen, I, as somebody who has to read two and three books a week, I actually cannot like physically take on a 700 or a thousand page novel. Right. It's very, like I am, when somebody sends me a book that's like 250 pages, I'm like, okay, we're in business. Like I can do this. And I think I, I appreciate as a reader, and I have often said this on this show, I appreciate compression. And when writers are able to do quite a lot in a confined space, Yeah. But ultimately what matters most to me is just that it feels like there's no wasted motion. Yeah. And if there's no wasted motion in a 650 page novel, I'm there for it, right? It doesn't matter how long a book is. Yeah. Yeah. It matters whether or not I feel like there are needless repetitions or it matters that the story is advancing and that I feel invested. And yeah. there's nothing better than like burning through a yeah. 700 page novel and feeling yeah. like it was effortless. Yeah. No, it's it sounds great, like that's that that was the case with the the bee sting. Yeah, no, it's a great feeling. I have to say, it doesn't happen that often with longer books for me, so I I cherished it. Yeah, likewise. And so, when you mentioned over the last two novels that you wanted to write shorter novels, was it with that ambition, like to try to compress and to be as efficient as possible, and to write something that just doesn't have any wasted motion, or is it simply a matter of preference as a reader? Like this is the kind of book I want to write. I think it was, I actually read quite a lot of longer books. I think it was partly that I had an idea of trying to use sort of poetry and rhythm in a certain way to get the reader to a certain place. And perhaps it's no accident that The Boy in the Field and The Road from Belhaven are both both primarily about young people. And so what, you think that stories about young people tend to be shorter? No, I don't think that exactly. But I think in each case, I was very conscious that I was just glimpsing a part of their life or trying to capture a part of their life on the page. And that what I wanted was to create a sense 
of that life going on beyond the page. And that's definitely there. And it's interesting to consider writing a character like Lizzie, you know, late 19th century from childhood into early womanhood and having to access her reality. I feel like some of us have an easier time getting back into that mode. Like I'm amazed by people who can write adolescence really well with like just such vividness. Like it's almost like they never left, you know? Uh, Was that a challenge for you? It's maybe not. Maybe like you had an easy time accessing Lizzie's girlhood. Some parts of it were a challenge. I think partly trying to find my way to the mores of that time and people's attitudes where, you know, a lot of public uh, public perception of the Victorian era is shaped by novels. Um, but there's a reality behind those novels that differs quite a lot. And trying to find my way between our ideals about the Victorian period and the actuality was one of the challenges. Yeah, that's one of the things I appreciated about it is the fact that it was a three dimension. This is a very much a three dimensional view of what life was like then. It wasn't quite as simple as the kind of caricatured view of Victorian era right. existence and yes. mores. Yes, P- people were still people. Yeah, and they were, make- <laughs> they were making mistakes. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. So I'm wondering. I always ask people uh, before we part company if they are working on anything new. You seem like somebody who's always got an iron in the fire, though I could be wrong. Like, are you working on something else? I am. I'm trying to write a new novel. Uh, It's in its infancy. Uh, The premise of the novel so far is that it's about the occasion of somebody's will. I mean, you know, someone dies and leaves a will and the effect that has on their children. Nothing. Which which is touched upon a little bit, interestingly, in The Road from Belhaven. There is a will in The Road yeah. from Belhaven. Yeah, and I think I, I was really interested in that and wanted to explore that idea in more detail and how the dead try to exert their authority over the living. Yeah, I had to write a will. I mean, I have kids, so you have to kind of do that. Yeah. But I didn't, I, it was a weird process. I did it when I was in my thirties. It's been a while. I did it on like legal zoom. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't, you know, I just like, I'm just going to do this. It's going to be legally binding, but it's not something I want to invest a lot of money in basically. But I remember some of the questions you have to answer. It was like, you know, where do you want to be buried and what do you want to, I think I would like some of the answers I gave when I reflect back on it are kind of comical. I was like, I don't care. Just sprinkle me somewhere. It's not my concern. Santa Monica. (laughs) Yeah, maybe, maybe. I don't know. But it's just, it's an interest that that, that is fascinating. You know, this process that we have to go through where we're like, we're not going to be here, but we're sort of leaving instructions to people for some reason. So I will look forward to it. And I am very grateful to you for taking the time to talk. I know you're a little bit under the weather. So I appreciate you enduring all of my questions. Mm -hmm. And I congratulate you on The Road from Belhaven. It's a terrific book. Thank you so much, Brad. You asked the best questions. I just think if I could talk to you for, say, I don't know, 15 minutes every day, my writing <laughs> life would be so much more fluent and efficient and profound. I think that's part of the joy of this show is getting to commiserate with other writers. And yeah. uh, I don't know, just lovely to meet you and lovely uh 
to get a chance to spend time talking with you about your work and uh, wish you all the best on this next project. Well, thank you so much, Brad. Good luck with your project. Good luck with Twiggy. (laughs) And I hope you get to Scotland in the next few years. I'm all ready to be your guide when you decide to make the trip. Listen, it's on my, it's like near the top of my list of places I want to go is I want to go to North England. I want to go to Ireland and I want to go to Scotland and just explore. Uh, Deeply fascinated with that place. And I have some family history, so it's a place I want to go visit and um, just really fun to talk with you and uh, hope we get to do it again sometime. Thank you so much. I hope that too. All right, everybody, there we have it. That was my conversation with Margot Livesey. Her new novel is called The Road from Bellhaven, available now from Knopf. You can find Margot online at margolivesey.com. Follow her on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. One more time, the book is called The Road from Bellhaven. It is outstanding. Trust me. Just trust me. Get a copy immediately. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. I would love it if you would sign up for my weekly email newsletter over at bradlisty.substack.com and join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. You can join the Other People Book Club if you want to get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. I interview book club authors on this program. You can sign up at the show's official website, otherppl.com. You can also get an Other People t-shirt or a sweatshirt at otherppl.com. If you have a couple of minutes and you want to do me a quick favor, and I know you do, please give this show a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. So, Maybe it's Apple Podcasts. Maybe it's Spotify. Wherever it is, rate the Other People Podcast. Give it a rating. Give it four stars, five, if it's possible. Write a little review, that sort of thing. It helps new listeners find the show. Finally, a quick plug for my latest book. It is a novel called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so I'll read it to you. You have options. You can read my book. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up on Friday, there will be another flashback episode where I dip into the other people archives and share an outtake from an episode from the past. And then on Sunday, my guest will be Paul Theroux. He has a new book out. It is a novel called Burma Sahib. It is a fictionalization of the young adult life of George Orwell. I had a very fascinating talk with Paul Theroux. That is coming up on Sunday. You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned.